Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Her daf today, Masachet Yibamot, daf Lamet Dalet, page 34. So we're still in the middle of discussing this very strange Mishnah about two women who marry two men and accidentally get switched uh, when they get to the Nisuan part of the marriage, even though they apparently did the Rusin part of the marriage correctly. And part of what the Gemara wants to discuss here on the top of Amud Bet, and it's a really interesting discussion because it's one of those things that you sort of have to know a background to uh, in order to understand what the Gemara is actually talking about. And so what, you know, they basically decided that this Mishnah has to be Rabbi Meir. Okay, that was the first part, the the top, top of the top, that this is uh, the Mishnah is according to Rabbi Meir. Now, Rabbi Meir had two teachers, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer. And the background to know here is that Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer had a machloket about a particular case, which is, let's say somebody is trying to do a mitzvah. And in the process of doing that mitzvah, they make a mistake and they do a, a chet, they do a sin that actually incurs the punishment of kareg. And so, the, and they end up like not doing the mitzvah at all. And so the question is, do they need to bring a chatat, right? They do, they do the sin accidentally. Do they bring a chatat um, in that particular uh, it, situation? So this is actually a, a famous machloket that is in uh, Masachat Shabbat um, and Daf. Uh, on, on page 137. And it's machlokas between Rabbi Yeshua uh, and Rabbi Eliezer. And it's that machlokas about a, a man who has two babies in front of him, one who needs a brit milah on Shabbat, right? And one who needs a brit milah on Sunday. And he accidentally mixes them up and does the brit milah on the wrong uh, on the wrong baby. So he does the Sunday baby on Shabbat and he does the Shabbat baby, right? Actually doesn't get it. So in other words, when you do the Sunday baby on Shabbat, you're trying to fulfill the mitzvah of uh, Mila, of Brit Mila, but you end up doing a karate sin because you actually violated, um, you, you violated uh, Shabbat. Um, and so Rabbi Yeshua says, in that case, the, the, the person who did that does not need to bring a chatat because he was trying to perform a mitzvah. Whereas Rabbi Eliezer says, no, he does have to bring a chatat. So the Gemara wants to reflect on here, if this mission is according to Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir has both of these teachers. Sometimes he, you know, learns his halakha like Rabbi Yeshua. Sometimes he learns his halakha like Rabbi Eliezer, right? In this case of our Mishnah, where you have a man who's trying to fulfill the mitzvah of getting married, and he accidentally switches, you know, the woman gets switched, and he ends up basically having a sexual relationship with a woman who's not his wife, right? Which is a curry-bearing sin, Right. What happens? Would he bring a chatat or would he not bring a chatat? So it's a lot of background to know to understand this. So the Gemara basically says, but Rabbi Meir, Aliba Deman. So according to uh, so and Rabbi Meir, according to whom? In other words, in this case of the men who switch their whose wives accidentally get switched. Right. Is he going to hold like Rabbi Yeshua, who would say you don't need to bring a uh, chatat or like Rabbi Eliezer? Right. E Aliba de Rabbi Yeshua. Right. Is his view going to be according to Rabbi Yeshua? Ha'amar ta'ab devar mitzvah patur, right? Who Rabbi Yeshua says that if you make a mistake while you're trying to do a mitzvah, you're patur for being a chatat. Ella aliba de Rabbi Eliezer. Or is he going to say it according to the Rabbi Eliezer who says, even though it's ta'ab devar mitzvah, even though you made a mistake doing a mitzvah, you still are going to have to bring a chatat. So the Gemara wants to give an answer to this. If you want, you could say, li'olam aliba de Rabbi Yeshua, right? It's always according to Rabbi Yoshua. He always holds. Ki ka'ama Rabbi Yeshua ta'ab devar mitzvah pator. 
Because when did Rabbi Yeshua say that somebody who makes a mistake while doing a mitzvah is pator? This is in regard to the case of the babies that we talk about in Masachat Shabbat, right? With the circumcision gets mixed up. When a person's time is rushed, in other words, somebody is rushing, right? You need to make sure you do the circumcision on the eighth day and not doing it later. And so we could understand like, you know, you were rushing, you wanted to make sure you did it on time, you made a mistake, you circumcised the wrong baby, you don't have to do a chatat. About hi, but here, according to our Mishnah, right, we're also, your ta'avit bar mitzvah, you made a mistake by doing it. But since here you weren't rushed at all, maybe according, right low, maybe even according to Rabbi Yoshua, you still would have to bring a chatat because there isn't that time constraint that there is with the case of the circum, you know, the of the mixing up the babies who needed to be circumcised. So the first answer the Gemara gives is, well, first they say Ella Aliba the Rabbi Eliezer, right? Maybe he really holds according to Rabbi Eliezer that you would have to bring a chatat, right? The second one is they're saying no, even according to Rabbi Yeshua, you could say that in this particular case of the men who mix up their wives and therefore end up sleeping with an Eshad Ish, they still would bring a chatat because the difference between this case. And the case of the circumcising babies that Rabbi Yoshua says your pator for bringing the chatat is that there's a there's a time constraint here, right? Circumcision has to be done within a particular time constraint. Marrying doesn't. And so maybe Rabbi Yoshua would even say in this case, even in this case, you still would have to bring a, a, a chatat. So now the Gemara wants to basically question that Rabbi Yoshua only would say that you're exempt from the chatat in a case where you're pressed for time, because maybe it's more understandable why you had that mix up. But there's a case of somebody who basically sins while eating truma and he's not rushed. And Rabbi Yeshua still says that he is exempt. So what is this case that we're talking about? They're going to quote the Mishnah, right? So we know that the halacha is that a Kohen can eat truma, right? And if a non-Kohen eats truma, right? A Yisrael eats truma, you have to repay, basically, you have to pay back what you ate plus a fifth of what it costs, okay? Um, and, um, you know, so this basically, you know, whether or not would you have to bring a chatat, right, would only, you would only have to do if basically you accidentally ate this truma, right? So what does this Mishnah basically say? This is a Mishnah in Trumo, and in, in the eighth parak, it's the first Mishnah. Ditanya, we learned in a Mishnah. Haya ochal truma, but coin was eating truma. The nodeshu ben grushau ben chalutza. And at that moment that he's eating truma, it becomes clear that he actually was the son of a divorcee or the son of a, of a chalutza, meaning he's in a category of what we call a halal, which is basically a Kohen who's born of a uh, not allowed, like of a forbidden union. So in other words, let's say a Kohen marries a divorcee or a Kohen marries a chalutza, meaning a widow who underwent chalutza because that woman is considered to have the status of being divorced. And that Kohen was born of that, uh, of that union. That coin is a status of being called a halal, and a halal, they they lose some of their statuses basically uh, of uh, of a coin. They're basically considered to be a non coin, so they're not actually allowed to eat truma. So let's say this coin, somebody who thought he was a coin his whole life, he's eating truma, and at that moment he finds out, oh, actually, he's a coin who's from an, a forbidden union, right? His father was a coin, but his w- mother was somebody that that coin should not have had, should not have married. Rabbi Eliezer of Karen Bahomish. So Rabbi Eliezer says that he has to pay the whole principal. He has to pay what he ate of the truma and a fifth. But Rabbi Yeshua Poter, 
And Rabbi Yeshua actually exempts him, right? Because he made a mistake while performing a mitzvah. Okay, but there's no deadline here. You can eat truma whenever you want, basically. So this, this, you know, what they're trying to say that in this case with the men switching, right? What would Rabbi Yeshua say and say, well, because there's no time constraint. Rabbi Yeshua say, maybe Rabbi Yeshua would say you would have to, you would have to bring a chatas. They have this example of the truma, right? Again, where you're tub bar mitzvah, you make a mistake while doing a mitzvah. And very clear from this mission of Rabbi Yeshua says, nope, he doesn't have to bring a chatas. And so this idea of it being an issue of a time constraint wouldn't really hold true because you can eat truma whenever. So the Gemara says, ha itmar la, it was stated regarding this particular mission in trumas, ama rabibi bar abai. So rabibi bar abai said, ha chabitruma be'erab ha pesach askinan. Here we're dealing with truma of chametz on Arab pesach, this manabahul, which is a time that's actually rushed. So in the end, to try to get some consistency with Rabbi Yeshua, they come up with this one very particular case where you would be eating truma under a rush date. And I'm laughing because we're recording this, obviously, the week of Arab Pesach, right? Uh, you know, when you're trying to get that last chametz meal in and you eat it, uh, you eat it very quickly. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of the end of, uh, uh, of their uh, discussion uh, with this, right? That basically the Gemara is going to go on here uh, to discuss a little bit more about maybe um, uh, you know, they, they're going to give a different, uh, a, a, a different explanation, uh, for the Mishnah, uh, later on that maybe this Mishnah could actually follow the view of Rabbi Shimon. Um, but I think this is just a very interesting sort of sidebar discussion. First of all, if you don't know some of the background, this Machlokas of Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer, there's a lot like to fill in here, uh, that one of the examples were like, you really need the Mepharshan to learn this Gemara, because if you just read the straight Gemara itself, it's very, very confusing. But I think this Machlokas of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer is very interesting Machlokas, right? What's the liability if you made a mistake while trying to perform a Mishnah? It's interesting that Rabbi Yoshua, I understand it, like why he wants to be more lenient. Because in a way, if he's not more lenient, I, I could see people being getting very scared to try to perform mitzvahs, Right. There's a mistake that you, if there's a possibility that you can make a mistake while doing a mitzvah and then you would be liable for a chatas. Yeah, that may be a disincentive for people to actually, you know, do the brit lab for people to get married. I, I don't know that people would take it that far, but I think Rabbi Yoshua's opinion is sort of trying to calm people down and sort of say like, yeah, mistakes happen. And sometimes we really inadvertently sin, even though we were trying to do the right thing. So I really think there's sort of, a real value to Rabbi Yoshua's, uh, you know, to Rabbi Yoshua's um, uh, sock. But I think the other piece of this is, is that, and this is worthwhile, we've talked about Rabbi Eliezer, I think we've done a Kusu and Rabbi Yoshua. This is very consistent with their personalities. You know, Rabbi Eliezer is a very harsh personality. Um, and we see that consistently throughout. Uh, we'll see this most when we learn the story of Tanor Shalaknai, where he has uh, you know, the oven of Aknai, where he and Rabbi Yeshua have their most famous machloket. And we'll get to that Gemara later on. But, you know, keep this machloket in the back of your head uh, when, when, you see, when you see that machloket. Rabbi Yeshua tends to have a much more practical approach to halacha. <laughs> and Rabbi Eliezer is much more like by the letter of the law. And I think we see this in this particular machlokas as well, right? Rabbi Eliezer is like, no, you did a sin. Doesn't make a difference what the circumstances were. You're going to have to bring a chatas. Whereas Rabbi Yoshua is like, no, you were doing a mitzvah. Of course, you're going to be pato. How could we have a person have to bring a, a, a chatas, you know, have to bring a sin offering 
uh, if they were doing machloka. So I think what's also important about this is this is a great example where you have to understand the personalities of the Tanayim because then their machlokas makes a lot more sense as well. I want to make a meta comment, if I may, which is that I think that this kind of larger discussion type of machloket that finds its way into Yavama, meaning that when the editors of the Gemara put this here, I feel like part of what they're doing is enriching our study of Yavamot because, because, right, it uses the case of Yavamot and it gets to this much broader topic, which we could have gotten to from the much, from other examples elsewhere, right? Because it's an ongoing, um, you know, fundamental approach kind of difference between them. So when they put it here, I feel like what they're doing is, I, again, this is speculation, but it feels like a conscious interruption of the Yavamo case studies um, to give us the like, right, there's broader meat here as well. There's sweeping. Yes, I, I agree with you. I love there's broader meat, right. And it's broader meat if you want to say the Mishnah is according to Rabbi Mayer. Like we have to figure that out. Right. I love I love these types of Gemaras. I mean, think about how many different cases we just got to. Brit Mila, you know, accidental confusion over marriage, Truma. And uh, yeah, that, the, that's the comment the Gemara is making is, is that like this isn't just like a case about people who accidentally mix up their marriages and maybe slept with an Ashat Ish. Let's think about this really broad, broadly in terms of like the meta machlokot that we see between the Tanayim. Right. Okay. So I'm going to move to the rest of like lower on the, um, on Ahmed Aleph and onto Ahmed yeah, Bet. The fun, the I've fun got part of this stuff. I was just, I was saying, I've got the spicy Gemaras today. Um, the first one is a, it's the Gemara is commenting on the phrase, the expression from the Mishnah Mafrishinotan, meaning that we separate women, the women who are married, let's say to their husbands, they separate them for three months to determine, right? The question is, is paternity, right? To determine whether a woman might have become pregnant from the previous husband before she's going to move on, right? So I, it's it's almost one of your Nisei Nistar, your data, because hot in the Israeli news, I guess, or there's a conference last week about this, whatever, that um, there's an issue of of how Israeli law treats Mamzirut, right? Um, Mamzirut, no? We talked about this. We when, said we don't like to use bastard. It's we don't halachic, want to translate it as bastard. It's right, a halachic. Yeah, it's the halachic status of somebody who's born of a for, of a uh, forbidden uh, union, different than what I talked about with the Kohen, uh, the child. Right, right, right. Kohen. right. Because that's like there's right. nothing. Right. It's not like an. Well, erba. the most it's common born, case. It's a child born of an erba, and I actually think this is an important point to make. What we talked about with the case of Truma, right, that a Kohen can't marry a, a divorced woman, that's not an erva. That's a Kedushas Kohen issue. Right. And I think that's exactly. very, very important to make that distinction. So I'm actually glad both of these cases come up on this page. A, well, a the most common. Somebody born of an, of, of an Erva relationship. But Kohanim, and the most common. Right. But sorry, but Kohanim who choose, and we know that we all may have friends of a Kohen who chose to marry a divorced woman. It, it It's not looked upon as something great to do, but it, those children are not Manzers. And I, I think we have to be very clear about that. But the what I was going to say was that the most common um, illicit case of Mabzirut is, you know, a woman who would become pregnant from an affair while she's right. married to somebody else. Right. But right. the crazy, the I don't want to say crazy thing, the difficult thing that happens in, in Israel is when, uh, uh, let's say, somebody is getting divorced, is divorced, you know, whatever, or the paperwork has not gone through, 
or for example, the the husband is a recalcitrant husband will not give a get, right? That kind of thing, and or or there's many different kinds of scenarios where they may really fully be separated, but in in as divorced. But if three hundred days have not gone by, meaning three hundred days is a lot more than the three months of this mission of the comment of the Mishnah and the, now the Gemara's discussion, and that's what I wanted to mention, and that's what one of the things that came out of this conference was the discussion of this three hundred day rule in Israel where a couple gets divorced, meaning halachically, properly, everybody is divorced. Three months go by. Now, let's say she remarries. Let's say she gets pregnant. But 300 days have not gone by. According to the Rabbanut, things, the paternity of the new child, right, who is conceived after the divorce has gone through and after three months later, so that the Gemara is not up for discussion, right, is still considered the old father and they won't do dna testing to determine that can't it simply cannot be right so it leaves some people very like high and dry in a status that can either be mumsy root or worse than mumsy root which is suffolk mumser right it's a question if the person is a mumser and then the state of israel will not allow that person not to marry a mumser not to marry a convert not to marry a not you know a jew who's born a jew it's a very terrible situation and there are organizations working to fix this because, and of course, part of the problem is it's not even the halachic situation here, right? Like, I don't know where the 300 number came, comes from, and probably I should have checked that out before I started shooting off my mouth about it. Um, but it's not the baseline. It's not the it's not the baseline that we find here. Um, so in any case, let's get to the Gemara. So we separate the women from the husbands to make sure that they were not pregnant. And so then the Gemara is going to ask, don't we know that the uh, someone, a woman who's a virgin will not become pregnant from the first time she sleeps with a man with her first sexual act? Now, anybody who ever went to high school sex ed knows that that is a myth. But the Gemara raises it as a, a legitimate concern. So Rav Nachman said, the Rabbi Baravua says, well, yes, they engaged in the sex act, and then they did it again. So it's possible that, in fact, it wasn't the first time, but it was the second time. Okay. Um, and again, I feel like, really, we're in people's private bedrooms here. The Gemara is trying to determine parenting, right? Parentage. Ve'ela hadetana rabichia, harekan tlatin v'tartin havian. So Rabichia says, uh, so no, the, the question is this. If that's the case, meaning if she if she simply is getting pregnant from the second act of sex, and how is it that when Rabbi is teaching, there's 16 chata'ot, there's 16 korbanot, sacrifices that they should bring. If there's only two acts of intercourse, then there should be, if there are two, not only, if there are two acts, 32 sin offerings, right? Meaning each of these prohibitions would be violated twice. She's not supposed to be sleeping with anybody at this time, she's supposed to be separated. Uh, the list of 16 is not our concern right now. It's simply a matter of trying to count how many, could she have got, the real question here is, could she have gotten pregnant on the first try? First time, they're not trying. So the Gemara says, well, according to that, then Rabbi Chia's list of the sin offerings will apply to every act of intercourse. Right, meaning according to the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, who says that you're supposed to bring a chatat for each koach v'koach. Now, what does that mean? Koach v'koach is, shall we say, each thrust. Pardon me. 
אלא דבקוח ראשון כחשיב, האכינה מדביה ראשונה כחשיב. And therefore, right, we would say that maybe we're talking about um, eat the, we're, when we say that the, that she cannot get pregnant, maybe it's only in that first thrust and not in the first, you know, entirety of the sexual intercourse between the two of them. Fine. Again, another really spicy graphic Gemara. Um, and the Gemara says, and then Rava says as follows, Amalei Rava le Rav Nachman, Tamar yabra, didn't Tamar, meaning the biblical Tamar, who's the daughter-in-law and then wife, so to speak, of Yehuda, didn't she get pregnant from that first act? Meaning, wasn't she a virgin at the time that she, that that Yehuda came upon her at the crossroads and mistook her, intent, right, she set it up, that he would mistake her for a prostitute and um, and they sleep together and she gets pregnant. So again, very graphic. Rav Nachman answers this by saying that Tamar broke her hymen beforehand so that the first act was already, so to speak, done, meaning the, the what is accomplished, according to the Gemara here in the first act, was taken care of by Tamar herself. The Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, I'm sorry. So what happens? Any of those women from the household of Rabbi Nasi, they all, this was this is what it says. They all broke their hymens and they're all then called Tamar. Why are they called Tamar? Tamar Because of this Tamar, the biblical Tamar, because she herself did this, so they are called after her name. Again, why is everybody talking about this? Unclear to me. Okay, but also, can we just like pause to talk about the fact that like it seems to have been socially acceptable and it is not criticized here for women to break their, to basically remove their hymen, whereas we know in today, halakha, our assumption is everybody bleeds after the first you know, after the first intercourse and therefore everybody, you know, sort of goes into a need status. I, I mean, it's just, this is not, I don't think it's, here. but I, I don't think it's praised here. I don't think it's nothing. I think it's not commonly done. That's why there's something to talk about. Right. I think I that it is. Know. I feel like it's praised here, but maybe I, and some of no. them can explain it as being praised. Yes. That it was a good thing because basically they would send what I read in some of the commentators is that, the the women of 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 you know the, of this house would basically send their husbands to learn in faraway places, so they wanted to maximize their ability to get pregnant as quickly as possible. This is what some of the mafarshims say. We could spend a no, lot. No, I understand. I I understand. I'm just saying that if it were commonly done, there would be no nickname for them. There would be no discussion of oh, it. Oh, I agree. It I don't been... think it was common. I just I'm I'm noting that it's not criticized. That's all. Um. Maybe, I'm not. I'm not as sanguine about it as as all that, right? Like, I feel like it's raised here as a question about those women, right? I don't know that it's so so positive. And in any case, um, the Gemara is of course going to ask another question, which you all may have been thinking about. What about the fact that she was already married first to Er and then to Onan, right? Havu Er Onan. She should. I I understand. We all understand that they quote unquote spilled their seed, right? They wouldn't allow her to get pregnant in that in or in you know at that time. But like the implication was never from the biblical text does not seem to be that they never slept together. The Gemara takes issue with that. Erva Onan, Shimshu, Shalokidarkan, they did not have they they only engaged in anal sex according to the Gemara here. Um which 
you know, is an interesting, basically it's an explanation of how it is that she didn't get pregnant ever from them to begin with. Okay, so I'm now going to jump, I'm going to skip down towards the bottom of the bet. Um, and we have, it's still in the spicy section of the Gemara. We've got the story where Ravin came from Eretz Yisrael to go to Bavel. He talks to Rabbi Yochanan and he brings the following case. So we have a woman whose husband has died, or maybe he's divorced her, but let's go with the died, that he's died narrative just for the sake of our own conversation now, right? Um, and she has waited 10 years. She And the point is that she, the presumption is that she has not had any sexual intercourse in the entirety of those 10 years. And then she gets married again, but she can't bear children. So Rav Nachman says that that principle, right, meaning the idea that she has waited 10 years, she hasn't had sex, she gets married, and then she can no longer bear children, it, it, does, it does not seem to be a description, but a prescription. And Rav Nachman says, no, that principle is only about in a case where she intended to not get married, ever. And then she does get married, right? But if she, what if she had intended to get married at some point down the road, then she could become pregnant down the road. Now, the daughter of Rav Chista has become very famous because of the book by Maggie Anton, right? About the daughter of it. It's called, I don't know what it's called. Rav Chista's daughter, I think is what it's called. So what happens? Um, Rava says to his wife, right? The wife, Rava's wife is the daughter of Rav Chista. And, and he says, the Rabbanan, the rabbis are talking after you, talking about you. Meaning, what does that mean? From the time that she had been widowed from her first husband until when she married Rava, that was 10 years, more than 10 years. And she bore children, right? So then the implication is, well, what if she was having sex in the interim in those 10 years, that that's what allowed her to continue or to again have children. I'm sorry, these are not the right words here. That allowed her to have children when she then got married later on. And she says to him, I was thinking about you. My mind was on you. Meaning all that time, she never gave up the thought that she might get married later, but she says it in a much more romantic, sweet way that she's literally speaking about him. Or, and again, there's elsewhere we could talk about how there's a prophecy that she was going to marry Rava. Okay, fine. Then we've got a new case, but on the same topic, so a woman comes before Rav Yosef and says, Rebbe, I did wait after my husband's death. I waited 10 years and then I gave birth. It sounds like almost this was going to be her form of birth control, meaning it sounds like it's a concern that she gave birth. He says, don't, don't cast aspersions. Don't mock the statement of the sages, right? The, what, what the Chachamim said. And then she says, well, really, she had sex with a non-Jew over, during those 10 years. So the, the presumption, again, that these 10 years will be a barrier to future pregnancy if you have not had intent to marry later is, I think it's a really interesting um, take on science, I suppose. Um, in, in any case, the Gemara goes on to talk about the fact that 
again, if there's any chance a woman might be pregnant, she has to wait three months before marrying. And that's going to separate between, you know, somebody from the first marriage or any previous uh, sexual encounter. I don't mean encounter. I mean intercourse uh, as compared to going forward to the new marriage. Um, I mean, I, I think yeah, it's fine to say, I think some of this is science driven. Some of this is the patriarchy. I mean, a lot of this is about <laughs> control of women. I mean, that's really the whole thing with the Manzeras is basically a way to scare women from not sleeping with somebody who's their husband. Um, and then this whole thing. And then you're seeing the other extreme, which is like, oh, but if you wait too long to get remarried, you know, you're not going to have children. I mean, there's I'm not comfortable with this stuff. There's a lot of control about women's bodies here. Sorry. I, it's so interesting. I don't read it that way at all. Also, the 300 days of the modern Jewish state is a, is a whole other conversation and, and a terrible conundrum. But the three months here to determine paternity in an era when you couldn't really do a paternity test, that doesn't seem so crazy. Three months is not no. that long. It doesn't seem crazy, but the point is the husband obviously doesn't have that on him either. Doesn't what? The husband can get married right away. In other words, it's a restriction only for the woman. Oh, I mean, the entire setup of one husband per woman and other numbers of women per man is an imbalance for sure. Mm -hmm. And isn't That's that all. also about to turn? Sure. Um, <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's, it's, I'm ready to move on to the next step. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hodgman website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.